I know we've got some intense sports fans in this congregation. Uh, one of them's on the mission trip, so I'm not going to needle him about his teams, but uh, usually because they win. But it's a true but somewhat bizarre phenomenon. You may have noticed, even in your own home, perhaps, that uh, sports fans have these rituals where they think that they can influence the success of their teams. Have you seen this? I mean, some fans think that they got to wear that special jersey, never wash it maybe, for their team to win. Or, uh, you know, they have to sit in the right chair. Or maybe they were eating pizza one time and their team did well, come back, and now they got to order pizza every time. You know, I got to kneel behind the couch for my team to make long field goals. That's a Pittsburgh dad YouTube quote. But, uh, of course, the spouses and the families feel that's pretty ridiculous, right? You know they can't hear you or see you through the TV, right? Yeah, but, you know, i got to send the right vibes, the right mojo. Dave knows what I'm talking about. So uh, last year, uh, I went to a Steeler game with my brother and my dad and my friend John, all four of us Presbyterian ministers, They won 52 to 21, so I would think it's only logical. A logical person would deduce that the Steelers should pay for us to be at all their home games, (laughs) right? Today's passage, Jeremiah chapter 44, we've got some similar twisted logic, not about sports, about life, about God, about worship. The last group of people who had formerly lived in Jerusalem are now living in Egypt and explain to Jeremiah how they view their lives, how they think their lives have been wrecked. But just like someone who thinks their actions can influence a sporting event when they actually have zero influence, uh, these exiles misunderstand what got them into the trouble that they're in. They look at the way that God punished them for their worship of false gods and conclude the exact opposite of what they should have taken away as their lesson. So let's see what God's word has for us. But first, let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Open and illuminate our minds so that we may better unperfectly understand your word that our lives may be conformed to what we've understood through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's turn to Jeremiah 44 in your Bibles or the the bulletin insert. The first half of the chapter is God's confronting his people through Jeremiah the prophet and saying that the same sins done in Egypt get the same punishment as they did back home. So I'm going to read the first 14 verses. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Judeans who lived in the land of Egypt, at Migdal, at Tepanes, at Memphis, in the land of Pathros. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation, and no one dwells in them because of the evil that they committed, provoking me to anger. 
in that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers. Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore, my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah in the streets of Jerusalem. And they became a waste and a desolation as at this day. And now, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, why do you commit this great evil against yourselves to cut off from you man and woman, infant and child, from the midst of Judah, leaving you no remnant? Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have come to live, so that you may be cut off and become a curse and a taunt among all the nations of the earth? Have you forgotten the evil of your fathers, the evil of the kings of Judah, the evil of their wives, your own evil, the evil of your wives, which they committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers." Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for harm, to cut off all Judah. I will take the remnant of Judah, who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live, and they shall all be consumed. In the land of Egypt they shall fall. By the sword and by famine they shall be consumed. From the least to the greatest they shall die by the sword and by famine, and they shall become an oath a horror, a curse, and a taunt. I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence so that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah to which they desire to return, to dwell there, for they shall not return except some fugitives." If you haven't been with us for our recent sermons, the short story is that God's people lived in the city of Jerusalem, which is in the larger area known as Judah. So I'm using those terms interchangeably. And as these verses mention, God had judged them for their worshiping false gods, which he called, you heard it, abominable actions. So God allowed even sent and caused the Babylonian army of Nebuchadnezzar to come and destroy Jerusalem and drag most of the people to their land as exiles. So the people that Jeremiah is addressing here were the ones who were left in the land, what we call the remnant, right? Uh, And they were supposed to stay in the land and and farm it and, and be ruled but there's an assassination attempt on the leader, and, and then somebody kills that guy that assassinated, and they, they all, in fear, run to Egypt because they think Babylon's going to come get them. But it wasn't just Babylon's power that they should have been afraid of. right? God sees them. God goes with them. And Jeremiah visits these refugees in Egypt to bring them God's word to them. Worshiping foreign idols and false gods had never helped the Hebrew people. 
But they continue to do it. I mean, Jeremiah is emphasizing, didn't you see the destruction that God brought? He laid waste your homeland, and yet they continued to defy him. And they take it with them. There's an old saying, wherever you go, there you are. Right? My father-in-law likes that saying. It's, uh, it sounds obvious and simplistic, but it's actually a little profound when you think about what it's trying to say, is that you can change your location. You can change where you live. You can change who you hang out with. But you'll keep acting like you, right? Your choices, your sins, your flaws, your self-deception, as well as your assets, your gifts, your talents and abilities, I mean, all those things go with you. They'll make your new life look a lot like your old life. No matter how much of a fresh start you thought you'd get, uh, it's, also, it's why people who get divorced and have a new marriage are sometimes so disappointed and surprised that the same problems they had in their old marriage are there in their new marriage because where they went, there they were. And Israel's sins traveled with them. The same idolatry, the same lack of faith in the true God all made the journey to Egypt with them. Now listen, a change of scenery is good sometimes. We have... We had some folks who moved to Virginia from California to escape uh, troubled pasts, and they got married, got jobs, found the Lord. It was an exciting time. Uh, I remember talking to one of them um, and saying, do you go to the Narcotics Anonymous meeting? And she says, oh, no, I don't want to know those people. Those were my people back in California. I don't want to know anybody in Virginia that can find drugs for me. Remember, that made a real impression on me. And changing your address, changing your life, expecting your life to change only works if your heart changes as well. And that's where Israel fell short. Their hearts never changed. They never bought in and obeyed and believed that God was who he said he was and that he would protect them and bring them through. Notice the whole chapter 10 times in chapter 44 mentions that they made offerings to other gods. It just has that phrase, made offerings and often with other gods. You glance down, verse 3, 5, 8, 15, 17, 18, 19, 21, 23, 25, 10 times. If you're one of those that looks for repetition in this scripture, gives you a good understanding of, of what God was so offended by. You know, most likely the actual uh, sacrifice, uh, official sacrifice was done by priests, right? But any citizen could take burnt offerings and offer them to these gods, even in their homes. And God objects to that practice angrily. Why? It's essentially pledging loyalty or placing your faith in these other gods, claiming that Yahweh God is not enough, that you need other gods to protect you, to give you what you want. 
There's a play on words in, in verse 11 and 12. I don't know if you caught it. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for harm to cut off all Judah. I will take the remnant of Judah who have set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live, and they shall all be consumed. Did you hear it? God says that he will set his face against them, this remnant, because they have set their face to go to Egypt. To set your face is to be very determined. And so God says, I'll match your determination. I'll match your intensity. God had wanted them to return to Judah someday as his remnant to repopulate the land. But now he says, that's, that's not going to happen. You'll be consumed. You'll never return home. I mean, we've seen the contrast. We, we've, we've had chapters in Jeremiah speaking of the shalom, the return to peace and wholeness and flourishing that was the vision of after exile. But these, this remnant is not going to experience that. That's going to be for the children and grandchildren of those who are in Babylon when they return to the land someday. Well, the big problem surrounding Jeremiah's speech, if you remember, if you were here last week, you remember the last chapter, is that they just flat out called Jeremiah a liar. God didn't say that. You are making this up. So their response is in verses 15 through 19, and it's just stubborn resistance and justification of their sin. Let's look at it. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by, a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. But we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we did. Both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. There's that twisted logic. And the women said, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? So we see in this response that the people would rather worship the so-called queen of heaven than the king of the universe. This queen of heaven is most likely the Assyrian Babylonian fertility goddess, Ishtar. In Egypt, it was known as Isis. Its Hebrew name was Ashtoreth. And that's the same goddess that King Solomon had built high places for as he began his slide away from the Lord. There's still goddess worship today. The goddess worshiping the mother goddess or worshiping the goddess Sophia or praying to the Virgin Mary. There's nothing new under the sun. 
And the people essentially tell Jeremiah, listen, we're going to ignore everything you just told us and continue to do all those things that you're rebuking us for. Right? We'll keep making drink offerings to the queen of heaven like our forefathers did, like we did back in Jerusalem, because it worked for them. There, we have no evidence that that's what hurt us, right? In fact, we had food and we were prosperous until we stopped making those offerings. And then we started getting hungry and getting attacked. So this is either willful justifying of what they knew was wrong or being so blinded and confused that what was helpful and what was hurtful. They were actually rewriting the history, right? They desperately wanted to believe these lies, so they latched onto this narrative that it wasn't the underlying evil that they were doing that hurt them and that made God punish them, right? It was the fact that they stopped offering to these false gods. And there's a further problem here. It, it, uh, the women that took the initiative to worship the queen of heaven, they're defiant because they, were, they remind him that their husbands didn't stop them. It's kind of an interesting uh, comment because it's, it's sort of an Old Testament law that says if your husband doesn't uh, stop you from making an oath, then you're allowed to do it. And so they're sort of justifying themselves under God's law break his law. And the husbands approved of it anyways. It's very reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam stood by, silently watching as Eve was deceived by the serpent and ate the fruit, and then Adam joined in. And so we have that here. It's a, it's a strong reminder, just a practical reminder that we have responsibilities as spouses to keep our spouses and our families' sin in check. Uh, I go over that in premarital counseling, that it's a beautiful but difficult part of marriage is that God can use the person you're married to to help sanctify you, to help you become more Christ-like by pointing out your sins, by pointing out your blind spots, by gently and graciously working through things with you. Now, not many of us have a hard time telling our spouses what's wrong with them. It's the gently and graciously for their good part that we have to embrace. So in reply to the people's stubbornness, and in the last speech of Jeremiah's life, Jeremiah sets the record straight and makes his final judgment prophecy. Let's look at the last 11 verses in this chapter. Then Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, all the people who had given him this answer, as for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials and the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? Did it not come into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a cursed curse without inhabitant as it is to this day. 
It is because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord or walk in his law and in his statutes and in his testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as at this day. Jeremiah said to all the people and all the women, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who are in the land of Egypt. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you and your wives have declared with your mouths and have fulfilled it with your hands, saying, we will surely perform our vows that we have made to make offerings to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her. Then confirm your vows, perform your vows. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, says the Lord, that my name shall no more be invoked by the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, as the Lord God lives. Behold, I am watching over them for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. And those who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. And all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. This shall be the sign to you, declares the Lord, that I will punish you in this place in order that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will give Pharaoh Hophra, king of Egypt, into the land of his enemies, into the hand of those who seek his life, as I gave Zedekiah, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who was his enemy and sought his life. Have you ever read something in the Bible that really started to convict you, but then you justified the way you act in your mind and you feel like you're fine. But I hope you realize it doesn't change the fact that the Bible still says it, right? You can have any view that you like, but it's not going to change the word of God and the things that he said. I mean, I, at times in my life, I haven't liked the whole forgiving your brother 70 times 7. I mean, I'll forgive him a couple times, right? But after that, I can hold a grudge, right? Well, Matthew 18, 22 hasn't changed just because I don't want to follow it. It's the same with Israel. And that's why we, Jeremiah just comes back. Hey, that's nice that you have all your little rationalizations for not listening to God. That doesn't change God's message to you. It is, in fact, your offerings to the queen of heaven that are my problem with you. And you persist in that horrible sin, no matter how much evidence you see that it's wrong. So verse 25, God essentially says, hey, go ahead. Do all the worshiping of false gods that you've sworn you would do. You've sworn your course, I'll swear my course. Sword and famine will wipe out all of the male Judeans living in Egypt. In fact, God wants to make it impossible for any of these men living in Egypt to even invoke his name. Right? To, they can't even say, as the Lord God lives. They don't have that privilege. God wants no part of these people who just keep rejecting him and turning away. Now, there will be a tiny remnant, it says at the very end, fugitives, he calls them. The remnant of the remnant that will return 
to testify with what happened. But meanwhile, Babylon will conquer Egypt as well. All right, the people from Judah are like the worst guests ever. They bring the destruction with them. Because of their sin, Babylon's coming. And that's historically exactly what happened in 568 BC. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon invade Egypt. And he sets his throne over Pharaoh's throne there when he conquers. So chapter 44, despite what it looks like, that we've, you're looking at your uh, copy of your Bible, and there's several more chapters of Jeremiah still there. This is actually the last scene historically, chronologically, of Jeremiah's life. We've got a couple more chapters there from earlier and a recap of the destruction of Jerusalem that's already happened. And unfortunately, we see that it's so much like the rest of Jeremiah's life, right? Preaching to people who might hear him but aren't listening and certainly aren't obeying. It would have been a great, nice, tidy ending, right, if these exile or if this remnant had stayed and learned all the lessons of not worshiping other gods, and they had stayed, and they had rebuilt. That's not how it ends. It's shocking that they continue blinded in unbelief and deaf to Jeremiah's warnings to change. How could they possibly think that escaping to Egypt and worshiping the Queen of Heaven would save them? But then the reality of our human condition reminds us that we're not often not very different, that we have short and selective memories. We rationalize our actions and our disobedience as well. But Jeremiah is faithful through it all, right? Imagine what kind of sadness, loneliness, disillusionment Jeremiah must have dealt with must have lived with as his preaching is basically ignored for 40 years, his whole life, even up to the end. When everything, even when everything he had said in the first few decades comes true, people still won't listen. They're still accusing him of lying, rewriting the narrative, right? We get some hints of Jeremiah's uh, disillusionment, his anguish throughout the book. But here we are at the end of his life, and he is still faithful. That's a good thing to pause and remember. I mean, we, we think we're rejected sometimes when ignored, if someone doesn't take our advice, or if we you know, want something to happen in church and it doesn't happen our way, or we're trying to witness to somebody who kind of shuts us down. I mean, we all kind of feel the sting of not being listened to. But I think that just gets dwarfed by the rejection and persecution that Jeremiah faced. We don't know how Jeremiah died, but we certainly believe that he would hear God commend him. Well done, good and faithful servant, when he stood before him. He had preached the holy justice of God against sin and called people to repentance. The fact that no one listened was in God's hands. Jeremiah simply had to be faithful. 
And as Revelation 2.10 reminds us, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Turn, if you got your Bible, or I think these, all these are in the, the bulletin outline. Turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Because it describes someone who was greater than Jeremiah, who brought God's word to the people. He was greater than any of the prophets because he didn't just bring God's word. He was God's word. God spoke through him. See, John 1, verses 1 and 14, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And while Jeremiah was called by God to be a prophet, this word had a deeper identity, God's Son. And just like Jeremiah, he brought words that explained how humans could overcome their sins by being right with God, but he was misunderstood and rejected by many. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his, pe- his own people did not receive him. And ultimately, this word, God's son, was greater than Abraham or Moses or David or Jeremiah or any of God's people throughout history because he was the way of salvation. Verses 12 and 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is the word that God spoke to us. In the fullness of time, the time that God chose, he sent his son to become a human being, to live a perfect life, to be rejected and falsely accused and killed. But God used his death to accomplish our salvation so that when we believe in him, he gives us the status of fully redeemed children of God. We just sang, what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What we read is that Judah, the people of Israel, just kept turning away, never turned back to the Lord. And he eventually stopped. But we're different. The Lord knows our great sins. The Lord knows the debt that we have that we can never pay off ourselves. And his mercy overcomes it. He calls us to him. And we're brought into his family. If you've never heard that before, and you want to know more about that, I'd love to talk to you, as would so many of the men and women in this congregation. If you've heard it before, if you agree with it and believe it, then all God's people said, amen. Give you a moment to close in prayer, and then I'll close us. Receive the benediction from 1 Timothy 16, 15 and 16. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.